Well, good morning. Um, I, I saw Mike Halpin this morning, and he said, Well, can't you're teaching, and I'm ready to suffer. Think about it. Uh, but then I was reminded of, of which I'm speaking today, and I hopefully he's referring to this. Last month, we talked out of the Beatitudes about the certainty of suffering and persecution for those who stand for righteousness. Uh, and given that certainty, the more important question is, will we stand for God, for the truth, for righteousness, if persecution comes? And it will. Uh, but first... Before we go on, this is a, a beatitude that actually gets three verses and therefore gets two messages. Uh, before we go on to the other two, I need to give a little warning. Uh, this message is not a flowery, pleasant one. Uh, in fact, it's going to be a little bit graphic at times. Um, the, um, the reality is that... This is serious business. You know, last week we, 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 we entitled the message, Rejoice in Persecution. Seriously? Today it's Rejoice in Persecution. Seriously. Uh, the handout I've, I've prepared is, is not real fancy. It's mostly just a lot of verses. Uh, because it's going to take more than just what I say today to convince some to accept what we're going to suggest today. This is also, on the other hand, a message of great hope in our eternity. If only we look at the front end of what happens to believers when they're persecuted on earth, that can cause a lot of fear. The question is, can we focus on the prize, on the reward? So, let's get started. The first, uh, or the, uh, the, the passage for today is Matthew 5, 11 and 12, where it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, you've got to admit, this is pretty shocking counsel. What can possibly justify the command to be glad when we're hated and mocked and tortured? And yes, Jesus intended for this to include death. And he says, look backwards at the prophets. That's what they did to them in, in, the, in the references I've gave, given you there. And then later in Matthew 24, he says, Jesus warns us, they will deliver you to tribulation, put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
He even warned that persecution would come from those who, bro- they, who believe they are acting for God. In John 16, it says, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. This is kind of what happened to a guy named John Bunyan. He was back, he lived in England in the 1600s. And uh, long story short, he was a Baptist. Problem was, in England in the 1600s, they had an official church of the state. It was the Anglican church. But John had a great fervor. He was a very articulate individual, and he, pro- he preached the word with conviction. And for that, he was arrested because he was doing so outside the recognized church of the state. Now, the jailer really didn't want to hold him there, so he says, all you've got to do is promise me that you won't preach anymore outside the recognized church. You can go become ordained in the Anglican church. You can preach, but not outside. John's response was, if you release me today, I will preach tomorrow. And so the Mexican standoff lasted for about 12 years. Now, what good could come of that? This young, godly preacher in the prime of his life stuck in prison for 12 years. Except that during that time, he wrote a little piece called Pilgrim's Progress, undoubtedly the most well-known allegory we have today. And it's the one that missionary translators will usually translate first when they're done translating the Bible. Clearly, God had a purpose for the persecution of John Bunyan. But this is not stuff that just happened, you know, 500, 600 years ago. Just this week, I read of, in the news of Yusuf Narakani. Probably a name you don't know, but he's an evangelical pastor in Iran who was in prison two years ago because he complained that his child was required to read the Quran in school. Uh, since being incarcerated, he refused to renounce his faith and was consequently sentenced to death. His lawyer has had some hope that he would be released, but I read just this morning that the charges have now been changed to extortion and rape for which the sentence is death. Even though the Iranian Supreme Court documents state clearly that the charges are turning his back on Islam and converting Muslims to Christianity. We should be praying for Pastor Yusuf. Well, what can justify the counsel of Jesus to people like this poor pastor or people who are in pain. You know, we've got to understand that this is not some young preacher straight out of seminary who walks into a funeral home and slaps everybody in the backs and says, Praise God anyway. No. This is the Lord. 
And he's saying to his disciples, many of whom he knows will soon taste the cup of martyrdom. Rejoice and be glad. How can he say that? Because he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that the reward of heaven is more than compensation for any suffering we will endure in his service. There's a mystery here. The mystery of joy in the midst of misery and groaning. And that mystery is contained in the miracle of faith. The bedrock assurance that heaven is a hundredfold compensation for anything we can experience here on earth. And to the extent that we trust what Jesus tells us about heaven, we will be able to rejoice and be glad in our suffering. Well, the word therefore when in, in the passage is really whenever, meaning any time persecution takes place. We don't know when persecution is going to come. We don't know the degree that we'll be persecuted. We just know that it will come at some point. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 4, and we're going to spend a little time here. And there in the fourth chapter of 1 Peter, starting in verse 12, we read, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Whenever persecution comes, it should be no surprise. It is what we have been told to expect. Now, I realize that's easier said than done, but that's what we're told to do. Tertullian, who is a second-century apologist and author, once said, the first reaction to truth is hatred. People don't want to hear the truth. Well, let's go on here. Verse 13, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may re- rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So, question. Should we rejoice and be glad every time we are persecuted? Let's read on. But make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer. That's pretty broad. Or even as a troublesome meddler. However, if anyone suffers as a Christian, in other words, for my sake, He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Peter says the same thing in chapter 2 of that book. For what credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? You sin, you suffer, so what? That's the consequence. 
But if when you do what is right, and then you suffer for it, and then you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So it is the suffering for the name of Christ when persecution comes for which we are blessed. So, the first question that should come to mind when we've got trials, tribulations, perhaps persecution, is, am I suffering for Christ or for some other reason? And what might those be? Well, a few might be. A big one for everybody is pride. We know pride causes contention, and pride often leads to disrespect for authority, and when authority senses pride, they tend to react. Uh, and sometimes young Christians view this reaction as persecution. In other words, you know, my boss doesn't like me because, because well, it's got to be because I wear that you know, WWJD bracelet, because I'm a Christian. Well, you know, if you got a poor evaluation or you didn't get promoted or even if you got fired because of a poor performance or a bad attitude, no. No, that's not the kind of persecution that you're going to be blessed for. In fact, that's what you probably deserved. Uh, and we've got to be very careful about that whole issue of pride. Just our words. You know, the Bible tells us that life and death are in the power of the tongue, and our words can certainly hurt people. If we're insensitive, if we're offensive, you know, we can expect a reaction. Certainly our deeds. You know, God or man can only judge what he sees on the outside, uh, and that's what we have to be aware of. Man's going to judge what they see us do. So our actions can bring, if they're offensive can bring reaction. And finally, even our motives. You know, people are really pretty sensitive to checking out what your motives are, and probably wisely so. Uh, And if they sense that we're doing something out of a selfish motive, or even if we're being nice, but it's for our own gain or something selfish, they're going to react to that because they'll see us as hypocrites. Um, if pride or wrong words or actions or motivation are the cause of our persecution, we should not expect blessing, but rather reproof and perhaps shame. So, therefore, in times of persecution, the very first thing we should do is examine ourselves. And if we find any of these causes, the next step should be repentance and confession and going to a person and asking for forgiveness for our wrong attitudes, our wrong words, our wrong whatever, even if that person is our persecutor. Otherwise, we're not going to be blessed. In 1 Peter four seventeen, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of the Lord. We've got to clean up our own act our own house. And we've got to be pure in our words, in our deeds, in our motives, without pride, if we want to be blessed in persecution. In verse 19, 
Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Hypo. If things were to change in America and become more like they are in, say, Pakistan or Iran, and you were faced with the option of standing for truth and for God and facing certain torture and death, or escaping so that you could continue caring for your family and serving within the remnant of the church, what would you do? Now, some folks, maybe a few who would say, hey, I want to get there as soon as I can. I want to see Evelyn. I want to see my spouse. And I'm going to stand for truth. I'm going to stand for God. It's not an ungodly desire. Others might say, hey, you know, I really like my life. I love my family. I want to stick around and take care of them, and I love to serve in the church. That's not an ungodly desire. But let me suggest to you that the biblical answer to this question is not quite as simple as our gut reactions might be. Uh, First, for the anxious martyrs among you, you know, those that say, I want to I just want to get there, so I'm going to stand and take it. You know, there are a number of situations in Scripture where Jesus himself was in hostile environments. You know, there are people who were mad at him, people who wanted to arrest him. And in the Gospel of John, you see several times, and in Luke, you see, what did he do? He escaped that persecution. Just last month, Mike taught out of 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. Paul, who was persecuted beyond what we can imagine, which were his credentials, remember, but when he was being hunted down, he escaped when he could. In Acts 12, we see a really serious situation. James, the brother of John, has been martyred by Herod, and Peter is captured and faces the same fate. But with the help of an angel, he escapes from prison, and the guards who were supposed to ensure he stayed were executed. Okay? So, you know, it's not always wrong to escape. Not at all. But there may be others out there who are the lovers of life, and I just want you to consider this. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 16. And there we have a situation where Paul and Silas have been falsely accused and arrested. Now get this picture. Their jailers tear off their robes, beat them mercilessly, and then throw them in the inner prison and put their feet in the stocks. What do they do? Well, starting in verse 25. But about midnight, this is a long passage, stick with me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. 
after that treatment. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there came an earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, because he knew if the prisoners escaped, he was, a dumb, he was, he was done for. But Paul cried out to him with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, this is the jailer speaking, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, Release those men. See, apparently somebody figured out that they didn't have any basis to hold and beat Paul and Silas. And the jailer reported that these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial. We who are Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now, are they sending us away secretly? I don't think so. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans, and they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And so finally, Paul and Silas went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. When they saw their brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. So Paul, after being falsely arrested and beaten, rejoices, singing psalms of praise, passes up a chance, an easy chance to escape, instead wins over the jailer and his household, and then invites persecution, and the authorities blink. Then in Acts 5, we read of Peter and the apostle. The apostles were doing signs and wonders. They're healing people all over the place. Some people are really weirded out by this. Others, a multitude, are joining on to the church at that time because of the miracles they're seeing. But this gets the attention of the high priest. And uh, he comes and has them in prison. And again, an angel comes and releases them and commands them to preach in the temple, which they do. But when the high priest gets wind of all this, he has the apostles hauled back in. And picking up there, if you're following, in verse 27 of Acts 5, when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted, 
to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, of course, if an angel tells you to do something, you do it. All right? Maybe not much choice there. But the fact that an angel releases you from prison does not mean that you're not going to be persecuted after that. God may give us a chance to stand for him, but if we wimp out, what are we passing up? So again, we're still in this question. Do we fight for God or do we flee for God? Jesus actually gave us some instruction on this issue in Matthew 10. In verse 16, he said, Behold, I sent you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say. For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his children, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Not a pretty picture. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now listen to this. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. You see, I believe that we are to continue speaking the truth in love as long as we can. As long as God has a purpose for us. This may very well involve escaping persecution. But just as the Holy Spirit will tell us what to say when we have no option of getting out, when we're caught, I believe the Holy Spirit will tell us when it is time to stand and fight or to flee and fight again another day. This can be different, I suppose, for different people. Um, Tertullian, again, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In other words, the persecution of Christians is what causes the spread of the gospel throughout the world. How do you think we're here today? Okay, we read about John Bunyan. That kind of stuff was taking place in England at that time. You know, Christians persecuting other Christians... And we had, within this Anglican church, we had a couple of groups. One was a group that saw the the, the heresies and the wrong things that were going on, and they wanted to purify the church. They were called the Puritans. There was another group that said, this is beyond us, We're, we're booking, and they're the ones who ended up coming to this country to start our nation. Those are the pilgrims. You can see how persecution is used by God to spread His Word 
Without America, this would be a very different world, no matter what the detractors say. Now, it's time for a gut check. Do we really believe that suffering itself enlarges our reward in heaven? Some have. Like martyrs Roland Taylor, Bishop Ridley, John Bradford, in that same era, they kissed the stakes at which they were burned. Obadiah Holmes received, Mike talked about lashes before, 90 lashes, and it turned his back to jelly. And he told his tormentors, you have struck me with roses. Pastor Yusuf in Iran and uh, Asiya Bibi, the Pakistani mother facing the death penalty in Pakistan that we talked about last month, stand as stellar examples for us of the courage and faith in this promise as I now speak. Do we really believe that the more our faith is tested through suffering, the greater will be our reward? Well, this seems to be the message we see in Matthew 19. Verse 29, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But even more clearly, in Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment... What we endure is nothing compared to what Christ endured. That affliction is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we do not look at the things which are seen but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You notice he says that affliction prepares or brings about an eternal weight of glory. In other words... Rejoice and be glad in the midst of suffering for righteousness and for Christ because that very suffering will receive a very great reward. The greater suffering your faith endures, the greater the reward you will receive in heaven as I read it. So as difficult as as it may seem, whenever these trials, tribulations, and persecutions come for righteousness' sake, rejoice and be glad. Isn't Jesus saying simply that he wills for his disciples to desire the rewards of heaven more than the pleasures and the rewards of earth? Later in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus asks us to place our treasures in heaven, not on earth. Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He wills our hearts to be so set on heaven that to leave this earth is a cause of rejoicing. Not without tears, as Paul said, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You know, not without pain and difficulty. You know, Jesus in the garden before the crucifixion sweat blood. 
He experienced it. He knew exactly what we experience. It's not an easy thing to face torture and persecution. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus' desire is to have us, have our hearts, our hopes, our longings, and our joy primarily in heaven. Otherwise, it really makes no sense to have us rejoice and be glad at the loss of our earthly joys. So how do we rejoice and be glad when these things are taken from us if we have not loved heaven more? Okay? One good thing we can do is consider the prophets of old. Uh, one, one simple place to look for that is in Hebrews 11, where, and this is a good passage to refer back to, in starting in verse 36, uh, it says that they suffered mocking and scourging, even chains and, and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, these of whom the world was not worthy. Now imagine yourself being persecuted with those folks and learn how to love heaven. It says uh, in verse 26 of, of that chapter, abuse suffered for the Christ is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for we look to that reward. We should also consider those who have given all for Christ. Read the testimonies, you know, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs or there's many others, you know, that we can, we can read today. Uh, a few from that same era we were talking about in, in England. There was a letter written by John Hooper, written three weeks before he was burned at the stake in 1555. You must, and where he said, you must now turn all your thoughts from the peril you see and mark the joy that follows the peril. Beware of beholding too much the joy or the misery of this world for the consideration and too earnest love of either that joy or that misery of this world draws us away from God. Now, young people, this is not a pretty picture. But consider being the child of a contemporary of Hooper's, John Rogers. And he was martyred in England at the, at, at the same time. His children accompanied him to the place of execution and called out encouragements to him through their tears that he might be strong and not dishonor Christ as he was burned alive. Some of you may have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, I believe he was a Lutheran pastor in, in uh, Nazi Germany and uh, a dissenter. He was imprisoned, and sh just shortly before the war ended, the Nazis were defeated, uh, he was sent to the gallows. And he said to the camp doctor, uh, Payne Best, this is the end. But for me, the beginning of life. And ten years later, Dr. Best wrote, At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, 
I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Getting a little closer. There was a, a, a young man, a 20-year-old by the name of Vanya Moiseyev. And he was a Baptist, but he also found himself in the Soviet Red Army. And those two didn't go well together. So he was tortured and tortured and tortured. And on July the 16th, 1972, he finally succumbed. On July the 15th, he wrote to his brother Vladimir, Do not tell our parents everything. Just tell them. Vanya wrote me a letter and write that, that Jesus Christ is going into battle. This is a Christian battle, and Vanya does not know whether he will be back. So, we look to the prophets of old. We look to the, the martyrs. Whatever we must do to get our hearts in heaven and off the world, that is what we need to do. Otherwise, we won't be able to obey the command of our Lord, rejoice and be glad in persecution. How many of you remember the movie, I think it was called Tip of the Spear? Okay, some of you. This is a few years back. Uh, but I saw that movie, and uh, it was like that great philosopher at Yogi Berra. It was deja vu all over again for me. As I watched the movie, these thoughts came back to me of a, a conference that I had with a, a missionary couple on furlough several years before. They just needed a little work done. And the maiden name of the wife was Saint. And I didn't know anything about these people. But she started to tell me of the story. I think it was her uncle and four other guys, one of whom was a guy named Jim Elliott, who in the 50s, ministered to a small, vicious tribe in Ecuador. And this tribe was well known for their, their savagery. They, they were trying to do, uh, drill oil there, and they would kill the, the oil workers. You know, they, were, they would kill each other. Uh, they, were, they, they just took joy in killing people. But they slowly tried to win their trust. They slowly tried to get access to them. And so they eventually had to fly this small plane and brought these five guys into a little sandbar and, again, tried to win their trust. But inexplicably, at least as far as they knew, the savages came, after being very friendly, came and speared them all to death. Now, the amazing thing is they didn't get caught unawares. They refused to bring any firearms with them. And according to what's, happened, what's come out later is when they were there, they did not fight as they were being put to death. Uh, Steve Saint, who was uh, the son of Nate Saint, who was martyred there, went back and kind of re put, this, put the story back together again. Because of the way that they responded to their spearing, the natives, the, this, these tribal people, wondered, what's different about these people? And so they, were, they allowed Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint and others to come in and explain the difference. And they ministered to those people. 
And in the movie, I'm seeing all this happen. And the story's coming back to me. And then eventually the guy who kills Nate Saint is befriended by his widow. And they bring him to the United States. And he becomes a Christian. There's a quote at the bottom of your sheet there, and I, it's, it's attributed to Jim Elliott, uh, one of the five martyrs. I'm not sure where it came from. It may have come earlier. Maybe he just repeated it. But it's, it's essentially, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the others, they knew they couldn't keep their lives forever. And they willingly gave those up to not only receive eternal rewards, but to put these people who were vicious, who were fighting against everybody in the world, in a position where they could come to Christ. Now, I don't know how severe persecution we're going to face, but I don't think there's anybody here who can say assuredly that we will not face persecution. Should we not be stealing our faith, tempering our courage to trust in Him? So no matter what we face, we'll know with confidence that it will be worth it all when we finally see Jesus. Last night... Some of us had the pleasure of seeing a movie, another Christian movie, which encouraged men to love, protect, and sacrifice for their wives and children in order to earn their respect and trust. In a few moments, we're going to remember the Lord Jesus Christ at the Lord's table, His sacrifice and His love for us. The biblical passages we've looked at today challenge each of us significantly. question is, can we count on Him to do, to reward as He has promised? Has He earned our trust? Lord God, thank You. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us. Lord, honestly, we fear some of these things. But Lord, we pray that whatever happens, that we would stand for you. That we would be your willing tools. And Lord, we don't know whether it's going to be just some nasty words at the office or a firing squad. But Lord, let it be for your glory. Give us that courage and help us to know that we are storing up rewards with you. Father, we give you all the praise and all the glory now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.